journey through Jewish philosophy, and let's just remind ourselves that philosophy is uh, not originally really uh, capital P philosophy is not originally a Jewish exercise, but uh, started with the Greeks, and but everybody picks up on it, and that philosophy for uh, the Jewish tradition is mostly a reactive exercise, and it's reacting to the thoughts and speculations of people about what we can know about the universe through our minds, through our rational thought, as opposed to the primary foundation of Jewish uh, thought, which is based on revelation. We go according to what has been revealed to us. That's the whole point of the continuum of Jewish thought uh, and practice. Uh, as opposed to uh, philosophy, which really, really focuses on uh, the rational uh, consequences of the mind. So Jewish thought nevertheless gets challenged by those propositions and has to uh, counter them. And we looked in the first, in the first session, we looked at uh, Philo, and then we looked in the second session, we looked at Asaj Gaon and the Kalam. And in the third, we looked at... Uh, the Neoplatonists of the uh, Golden uh, Age of Spain. We looked predominantly at Shlomo ibn Gabirol, but also Bachi ibn Pakuda and others. And really what that story is telling you is that already for uh, nearly 1,500 years, the dominant thought paradigms of Western thought, because uh, obviously there's China and India, we haven't even touched on that yet, but the dominant paradigms of, of Western thought really emerge from this dual a perspective created uh, by Plato and Aristotle. And if you recall in the first uh, session, we talked about the idea in very, very broad terms that Plato uh, is asking us to make a mental movement away from this reality towards a, a kind of a higher, more ideal form of reality that he wants us to contemplate. And Aristotle is going, don't worry about too much what's happening up there. Uh, the task of the human mind is to focus and look into here and what is going on here. And that's why uh, Aristotle becomes ultimately, in a way, one of the founding paradigms of what's going on to become Western science. And that's really the point that we arrive at, because what I want to talk about today, <laughs> in an absurdly short amount of time for the topic matter, uh, is really this turn, this shift that happens in the 12th and 13th centuries uh, in Western thought. And that is, whereas people have, for the last thousand years have been dabbling with, with Plato, and we had uh, a series of neoplatonic uh, thought revolutions within that platonic continuum, uh, all the neoplatonists from uh, Plotinus going forward, but also incorporated within the uh, theological traditions. We looked at that last time. But now there's a turn. And now there is a return within Western thought to Aristotle. And there are many, many reasons for that. And scholars talk about why that happened, but there's some predominant ones. And they are uh, that uh, the Greek thought of the ancient world has been carried over predominantly by Arab thinkers, uh, Jewish thinkers as well, but predominantly by the Islamic world. Now these texts are starting to be translated into Western languages and uh, philosophers and thinkers are starting to discern more 
that there is a distinction between the writings of Plato and the writings of Aristotle, and that the writings of Aristotle are very exciting because they accord with a kind of a newfound perspective on things which is driving towards what we're going to look at as science. In the Middle Ages, there's no real distinction between philosophy and science. So the way that Aristotle looked at the world and the way that those who came in the wake of Aristotle look at the world is pretty much how we look at science today. They didn't see that their perspectives were any less valid than the way that science uh, looks at the universe today. But I want to, uh, I want to get down to the core of obviously who I'm going to talk about today. And some of you will already be aware of who I'm going to talk about today. But we need to background that because when we talk about people like Maimonides, and we talk about the Rumbum, who were living in the 12th century and who were part very much of this new uh, enthusiastic uh, embracing of the philosophy of Aristotle, which I'm going to talk more about, uh, we need to realize that the Rumbum does not exist in a vacuum and that he is, in fact, quite <laughs> embedded in things. And... Uh, in order to do that, I'm going to uh, show you. Oh, where is it? Here we go. Now I'm going to share screen. Oh, very nice. So here we go. Look, um, what we need to realize is that they have, uh, if you look at the, <laughs> those, those of you who are very discerning amongst you will notice that on the top of the line, we have a series of Jewish philosophers and on the bottom, of, underneath the line, uh, we have some people whose names would suggest that they might just be coming, uh, they might just be Islamic. So these are the big four. There are many, many Islamic thinkers, but if we look at Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, Al-Ghazali, and Ibn Rushd, they are living during this two, three hundred year period that oversees this shift towards Aristotle. And whereas Al-Farabi uh, is a contemporary of Sajid Gaon, and uh, Averroes or Ibn Rushd, who's living in the 12th century as a contemporary of Rambam, uh, are really dealing with kind of different sorts of ways in which they are looking at the uh, philosophy of Aristotle, because more and more we are seeing the philosophy of Aristotle being focused out of uh, the Platonic. What I really want to show you here is that even a figure as mainstream Jewish as the Rambam is embedded, in a sense, in, uh, in a historical back, uh, context. And he is part of really what the Islamic world is bringing to the West from the ancient Greek world. Uh, but the Rambam, of course, uh, needs no introduction. Uh, I do, however, uh, I'm going to give, uh, uh, I'll give a very brief one. But before I do that, I realize that I actually need to talk about what exactly it is that Aristotelian philosophy is giving us. And if we could sum it up in kind of one way, it would be the primacy of intellect. It is the primacy of intellect. Intellect is everything. I mean, Aristotle grounds being on... The, a universal intellect that thinks or knows itself. Aristotle doesn't talk about God per se, but whereas it was kind of easy for the Platonics to come along and say, ah, oh, 
Well, Plato's ideal, realm of ideal forms, that's heaven. At the top sits the good, that's God. What the Aristotelians are now realizing is that uh, the Aristotle positing, and of course Aristotle as it came to us through Al-Farabi and other Islamic thinkers, is that that grounding that Aristotle gives us, that at first there must be a necessary being that whose existence doesn't depend on anything else, but that being is a prime cause, because it's the prime cause of all motion in the universe, and that that being ultimately is the intellect that is universal and thinks itself and as it that these are aristotelian ideas and that that is god come the theological thinkers who are looking at aristotle and by the time we get to the late middle ages what we're realizing is that 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 uh thinking of itself god thinking of itself is what creates the universe in the kind of synthesis that people like Al-Farabi are making. But I really, 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 if we're gonna, there are so many things we could talk about with the Rambam, but the real takeaway is going to be, and I'm going to keep coming back and talking about this, the major, way, the major takeaway is going to be the primacy of the intellect. And not just the intellect of God, but also uh, the human intellect as well, because, and this is a really really essential to understand when we look at Aristotle in the Middle Ages, or Aristotle at any time, and that is the nature of our reality, and let's face it, that's what philosophy is trying to work out. The nature of our reality is determined by what we know about it. The human being is a rational being. The mind is an organ that can be exercised, if you like, and we, um, reality is determined by what we know about it. And that's extremely important. And I'm going to show you uh, what that ultimately means. And what that means is this. And here's something, here's a, here's a nice graph. All these graphs I did because uh, they're fun to do and uh, they kind of indicate to us what's going on. So, Aristotle already had kind of, this is how Aristotle understands knowledge about how we go about it. There are basically two broad domains of knowledge, which we call the speculative and the practical sciences. One's looking into the nature of reality and the other is looking into the nature of human conduct. And what that which combines all of them, of course, is logic. Logic underscores everything. The, our investigations into the nature of reality have kind of physics, mathematics, metaphysics, all of these speculative ideas, and logic uh, is also going to determine our understanding of ethics, our understanding of economics, and our understanding of politics. Interestingly enough, uh, in the Middle Ages, although people as philosophies uh, in the speculative realm and the scientific realm are very Aristotelian, in politics, uh, everyone's still going uh, very much with Plato. Plato's Republic is still a very, very dominant work in the realm of politics. And I might come back uh, to talk about that uh, at some point uh, in a few moments. But uh, I want us to understand the primacy of the intellect and the uh, primacy of knowledge. And it all matches up. By the time you get to the high Middle Ages, the 12th and 13th centuries, speculations about 
metaphysics and about the cosmology of the world and our observations of the world kind of match up. And here's what this means. There's one more graph I want to show you in order for us to understand really how the Aristotelian universe is being encapsulated in the Middle Ages. And that is that Aristotle and those subsequent to Aristotle thinking within the Aristotelian tradition uh, begin with the idea of an immovable prime mover who is not contingent upon anything else, who contemplates and thinks itself and in thinking itself generates other intellects and other forms. We can see that that is already starting to get uh, a bit of a, a neoplatonic synthesis because they are already emanating other intelligences. And here's what, here, here's what it looks like. This is very, very broad, this diagram I'm going to show you now, but it will give you an idea. Um, one second, where are we going? Okay, we're going to go there. Then we're going to go here, and we're going to go here. Now, look at this. Look at this. Let me explain this. Let me explain this. All of this, by the way, is by way of introduction to uh, what I need to talk about today. So we have to do this quickly. But the basic picture is that we've got uh, the prime mover here the, and the, and the, and the self-knowing intellect that generates celestial intelligences. Um, now, <laughs> the lowest of those celestial intelligences uh, is what we call, is what is called the active intellect. That is, in a sense, is that which uh, creates and causes knowledge to come into where we live, which is the sublunar abode. There's different opinions as to whether these particular spheres, these in pure intelligence spheres, are above the planets and the, cir the, the, the circles and the spheres of the planets and the stars as we know them or whether they can be identified with the spheres of the planets and the stars, bearing in mind that it's not just Aristotle who's contributing to this model, and it's not just Islamic thinkers who were coming after Aristotle, it's also Ptolemy as well, that whole picture of the universe, but it all that, that, that emerges to us from the ancient world, but it all matches up, because what we can perceive of the universe these spheres that surround us, and we can see planets and stars, and they all move around us. Obviously, the Earth is in the middle, in the center of this, of this picture. As they move around us, they seem to reflect these divine, unchanging circumstances that happen in the celestial realm. All accidents and all changes and all different things and pluralism and all the ways in which things are corrupt and changing all happen in the center here, in the sublunar abode, we are all surrounded by these spheres of intelligence. But what is important is, is that the highest level of the sublunar abode and the lowest level of the celestial surrounds is the active intellect. Now, I know, I know that all of us, very, very smart people in the 21st century, come along and say, oh, that's ridiculous. That, that's your picture of reality. You, that, that's it. You've got spheres and then you've got a divine intellect happening and, uh, and it all looks a bit silly. 
But uh, 800 years ago, that is not silly at all, because it seems to be the case. Uh, they can plot the divine spheres as they move around. Those divine spheres carry a certain type of uh, intelligence that is perfect, that is unchanging. All change happens only here. And the intellect of God spills over into the sublunar realm via the active intellect. So that's the basic picture. And now, really, what the big takeaway that we need to look at now is if I've got science, and this is a question that doesn't go away, uh, there might be some details that get changed over the last uh, 800 years, but some things don't go away. And that is the challenge of saying, okay, here's Aristotle's universe. This is what makes sense. Uh, you've got the Torah. Now, why am I going to obey the Torah when it doesn't necessarily seem to reflect these amazing discoveries and realizations that I'm getting through understanding the universe as per Aristotle, Vachaverov? And uh, especially once I have Ptolemy, I have all my scientists, my astronomers, my observers, everything seems to tell me that the universe is like this. Aristotle is also telling me everything I need to know about politics and everything I need to know about economics. He's telling me everything I need to know about the physical universe, the metaphysical universe. Aristotle was a complete system. And what do I need the Torah for? So the first thinker that I want to talk about today, having given that quite long introduction, because now we're able to understand what these challenges are, is Avram ibn Daud, who is... Uh, uh, really would have been a lot more famous if not for the career of the Rambam, because the Rambam's career kind of eclipsed him. But he's kind of like the first person who's coming along and saying, well, wait a minute, we don't have to try and reconcile scientific philosophy with Judaism, because that harmony is not only essential, absolutely essential, because we need to understand that we're going to take the premises that Aristotle gives us and regard them as correct, that human beings are rational beings, that they have an intellect, that they are capable of understanding the world around them and need to understand the world around them. That's not inconsistent with Judaism because, in fact, Judaism is philosophy, and Aristotle and all of philosophical traditions are, over time, gradually evolving into Judaism itself. Judaism is a rational philosophy. In his famous book, Emunah Ramah, he tells you that philosophy is basically evolving into Judaism. And therefore, our understanding of the harmony between philosophy and Torah is essential. Avram ibn Dawood is going into a great many other things, but I don't have time to go into that right now. But it's essential for us to take away that, 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 that basic idea that what he shows us is that already in the 12th century, there are efforts to try and reconcile it, and those efforts are doubling down. They're, they're not just saying that it's possible to reconcile the two, it's telling us that those two are the same thing, that Judaism is just an extremely 
enlightened philosophy and the rest of the world is just taking its time to catch up. Uh, obviously, um, Ibn Daud had read some previous philosophers. Uh, he read uh, Saadia Gaon, he thought that was okay, but uh, he read Shlomo Ibn Gabirol, who you would recall from a couple of weeks ago, the great Neoplatonic thinker dealing with form and matter. He thought that was absolute nonsense. He threw his copy of, of uh, Fons Vitae in the bin, and he said, oh, what are we concerned about what's going on up there with form and matter and these things? It's all about down here, and it's all about science. And until we understand that Judaism is a science, we're not going to get anywhere. And that's really, really what positive. Judaism is a science. Now, the, however, we, we, we need to get to terms with the, big, the, with the big one. And the big one is born, as you would famously know, in Cordova um, in the 1130s. That's Moses, the son of Maimon. His father was the, uh, one of the chief rabbis of Cordova. So he grew up in a very esteemed and learned environment, but very soon, early on in his, uh, uh, in his life, the Almohads came through and the family had to go on the run. It was a very, very tumultuous time. But through that, Maimonides emerges uh, over the course of the next 30, 40 years as the greatest scholar in the Jewish world. And we've spoken elsewhere about just how amazing he is. He's not just a big, big rabbi, uh, but he's also a physician and he's also an astronomer and he's a philosopher and he's just like absolutely dominant in Jewish thought in that era. Uh, had he just been a philosopher, he would have been great, but he perhaps wouldn't have been so dominant as a philosopher. What gave him his power as a philosopher was his complete credibility within the Jewish rabbinic tradition. He had already written the Mishneh Torah, which is a complete compendium of the entire oral Torah. Not everyone can do that. And the Rambam did that. And therefore, when he talks on philosophy, he's really talking as an authoritative spokesperson on behalf of Jewish thought. Very few people can actually <laughs> give themselves that particular title, but the Rambam could. Now, the Rambam read Al-Farabi, thought Al-Farabi was brilliant. So basically with a few nuances, we can take Al-Farabi's system, as I showed you, and use that as the groundwork for the Rambam. The Rambam deals in his famous text, Moren Vuchim, which means the guide for the confused, the guide of the perplexed, the most famous book written in the entire, entire history of Jewish philosophy. That is the most famous book written. And it is a profound text. Anyone who makes a journey in Jewish philosophy has to encounter that text, has to encounter the guide for the confused, the guide of the perplexed. And who are the confused? Who are the confused? Basically, anyone except the Rambam. The Rambam's not confused, and he's coming along to tell you why he's not confused and why you should not be confused. Oh, what are you confused about? Well, Rambam, on the one hand, I've got science. And on the other hand, I've got Torah. How do I reconcile these two? How do I reconcile these products of the rational mind? That's demonstrable, telling me what's going on. 
and the Torah that is revealing information to me about what I can do. And in every sphere of life, the Torah is telling me what to do. And in every sphere of life, philosophy is telling me what to do. And when I say philosophy, we mean science. And some of you would be aware that that question, how do we reconcile science with Torah, has never really gone away. And therefore, the Moren of Ochim remains an important text. Even though the Rambam's answers to those questions are not the answers that we seek today, because our science has changed. The actual project of reconciling the two is absolutely paramount. There is no question whatsoever for anyone that even spends five minutes reading anything in the side, the guide for the perplex, will be left in no doubt that the Rambam believes that knowledge and perfection of the human intellect on rational lines is the primary objective of a human being and that to shut the door against science is an absolute spiritual and religious travesty. People today who say, I don't want to know about science, I just want to look at the Rambam, uh, are ridiculous. Because the Rambam himself will tell you that every human being in the world has to understand science and has to perfect their mind according to what we know. And the beauty of it is, of course, that Judaism is all based on science and it's based on enlightenment, and it's based on philosophy, so it's really all one and the same exercise. But you have to learn mathematics, and you've got to learn physics, and you've got to learn astronomy. And you need to know about these things, because that's part of understanding the world. And also, of course, medicine, and all these other uh, aspects of, of, of human life. So the rational and the revealed are one and the same, equally for the Rambam as it was for Avram ibn Daud. And Judaism is fundamentally a philosophy about God. It's philosophy, but the main subject of it is God. Now, when we talk about God, and, 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 and Moren of Ochim is a great big fat book. I mean, it's been translated a few times. You can read it. It's not an easy read, and therefore we need to think very carefully about what our takeaways are from it. The primary thing I want us to take away is this idea of the imperative of philosophy and science in our spiritual uh, investigation. And the fact that the perfection of the intellect really is the highest achievement possible for any human being and that that emerges from the whole Aristotelian shift that is happening in the Middle Ages. But there are a couple of points that if the Moren of Ochim, if the God for the Perplexed comes up at a dinner party, you're going to want to know a couple of things that it says inside. So we're just going to look at one or two points that are important. First of all, <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's amazing how many people run around talking of things on behalf of Judaism that haven't actually read the texts they're talking about. Because right at the beginning, the Rambam's going to tell you that those who read the Torah literally 
are wrong. Literality is an obstacle to enlightenment. I'll say that again. Literality is an obstacle to enlightenment. The Rambam in uh, chapter 2 of part 1 there of Moren Vuchim gives you a very good example about that, about some guy he met at a party who asked him a question about something and the Rambam totally destroys him based on this idea that you don't know what you're talking about if you're reading the Torah literally. However, the Torah does use certain um, descriptive modes when it talks about God. And that is an issue the Rambam does need to address, what we call attributes. How can we give God attributes? So the Rambam, and this is important, it's a bit technical, but it's important. And that is that the Rambam realizes that there are two types of things we can say about anything, and it's attributes. There are attributes that are essential, and there are attributes that are kind of accidental. In other words, they, they change, they can vary, they're on a scale. When we talk about accidental things about God, we are talking about the way God activates, act, is active in the world. These are active attributes. And we can talk about saying, you know, God, 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 God uh, acted mercifully, God acted with judgment, God acted here, God acted there, that's fine. But when we talk about what God is, in essence, we can only say what God is not. And the way that works is it's like a double negative. If we want to say God is mighty, we can't say God is mighty because any attribution like that is comparative to us. And God's not even on the same scale as us. So we say something like God is not lacking in power. God is not lacking in wisdom. God is not lacking in goodness. God is not lacking in mercy. Anything we're saying about the essence of God must be expressed in that kind of what we call via negativa in a kind of negative way. That means that God, in essence, is completely removed from any attempt of human language to be able to encapsulate what God actually is. This is extremely important to understand because subsequent Jewish thought is going to have to cope with just how far the Rambam put God, in essence, away from us. Uh, but it's okay because we have access to God via the active intellect. And the more we perfect ourselves through our intellect, the more enlightened we're going to become and the more spiritual we're going to become as we exercise that human organ of the mind the, the active intellect to the mind is a bit like the light to the eye. In the Middle Ages, they saw the eye as a thing that was capable of adapting to the shape of whatever it looked at. And so similarly, the mind is capable of perceiving form through the active intellect. Uh, but you need to exercise it. You need to exercise it. And in exercising it, as with anything, you perfect it. So it's all a very, very holistic system. The Rambam is extremely holistic in the way that he looks at the mind, the body, the world, and the whole cosmos. The Rambam also talks about the concept of tselem. So he says, okay, so we have this verse um, that, uh, 
human beings were created in the image of God, in the image of God. Well, of course, God doesn't have an image. The image of God, the famous Selem argument of the Rambam, is that man is endowed with intellect, with intellect. And that is the meaning of Selem, the ability to... Uh, the ability to know and the ability to analyze and the ability to cognize and the ability to have rational outcomes. All of this is in the province of the human and is shared between us as a reflection of the divine intellect all the way up to God. The highest human achievement is perfection of that intellect. No question. He says it to you explicitly. And that itself is going to lead on to what would be the ultimate perfection of intellect, which is what we call prophecy. Prophecy for the Rambam is not some ooga-booga kind of, ooh, I'm a prophet, and God goes zap, and you're a prophet. No. A prophet is someone who has achieved such amazing uh, prowess and intellect uh, with their mind that they perceive absolute truth in a very, very uh, clear form. And that's what prophecy is. It's not for everyone, but it can be achieved. That led quite a number of other thinkers to try and work out how one could achieve prophecy through intellectual efforts and with varying degrees of success. But that's Rambam's view of prophecy is that the, is that the active intellect, in a sense, spills over into the human imagination. I've got a beautiful quote here from Moren of Uchim. This is actually, these are the words of the Rambam himself. Prophecy is, in truth and reality, an emanation sent forth by the divine being through the medium of the active intellect in the first instance to man's rational faculty. Remember, that's first, to the rational. And then to his imaginative faculty. So it comes through as such pure form that you can't even put it in language the way you receive it. It has to spill into your imagination so that you're able to couch it in human terms that can be understood. So we can start saying, this is what the Rambam does. He takes concepts and he grounds them in science. His science is not our science, but it's on the way there. And it's really the paradigm of thought that is ultimately important here. You also need to realize that the Rambam argues with Aristotle. He doesn't, I mean, <laughs> make no mistake, the Rambam is a massive fan of Aristotle. Um, he, uh, he regarded Aristotle as basically as high as anyone could get, uh, given that they've got a foreskin and that they're not a prophet of Israel. Basically, it's as high as your, the human mind would be able to achieve. Nevertheless, he argues with Aristotle on one or two fundamental points, and it's and and it's going to have a a um, consequences in Jewish thought. And the most famous of those, of course, is that the Rambam tells you that I can accept most of what Aristotle tells you, but I'm not going to accept his idea that the universe is eternal. Uh, the Rambam believed because he was told by the Torah that the universe is created. And what he did was he didn't prove that the universe was created intellectually. He simply proved that Aristotle couldn't prove that it wasn't. Aristotle argued that the earth, that the universe is eternal. The Rambam says, you know, all of those spheres that we can see, we don't need, 
we don't know enough about them to be able to work out uh, what accidents might be happening with them. So it would appear to the Rambam that the world was created uh, because we don't know enough about it and because I'm told by the Torah uh, that it was created, we don't know enough to prove that it wasn't. Famously, it was Spinoza um, about uh, 500 years later who came along and said, uh, well, actually... Uh, if the Rambam knew what we know today, and this is Spinoza in the 17th century, if the Rambam knew what we knew today, he would have to agree with Aristotle that the universe is eternal. Uh, that argument is still going on, and it doesn't keep too many people awake at night, whether the earth is eternal or whether it's not, whether the universe is eternal or not eternal, and who was right, the Rambam or Aristotle. But it's an important thing to be aware of, that the Rambam is trying to reconcile uh, Torah with science on the assumption that the Torah is uh, an aspect of the active intellect coming into the world. Uh, but the Rambam was, I'm just looking at the time, the Rambam was also extremely controversial. Uh, there are two outcomes of the Rambam's thought in this primacy of, first of all, you have to realize that uh, to read the Rambam is kind of like, um, it, 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 it does come across as a bit of a snob. I have to tell you, with all due respect to him, uh, because, uh, every, I mean, everything is about the perfection of your intellect. So right down to the fact that even your own divine providence, the idea that uh, God is particularly interested in the minutiae of your life, that fact depends on your intellectual attainments. That fact depends on how much you have accessed the active intellect of the universe through perfecting your mind. Those who don't do those exercises are just at the whim of the natural laws of the universe. But the more you work on your mind, the more you actually can be subject to a very specific divine providence. Uh, and not only, <laughs> and, and, not, and not only your hashgacha pratit, not only your divine providence, your specific divine supervision grows, but even your olam haba your world to come, the, uh, the next world that you're going to go to as a reward for this one is all about what you have attained with your mind in this world. The Torah itself was, listen carefully, the Rambam tells you this, not David Solomon, some, you know, or some chazafresing apikoros on a Thursday afternoon. The Rambam's telling you, the Torah is for the masses. The mitzvot of the Torah are pathways to philosophical enlightenment. And that created a massive debate following the Rambam that ended up with Jewish philosophy being, with philosophy being banned for a while because people were coming along and saying, oh, well, the Rambam's told me that the mitzvot of the Torah are pathways to philosophical enlightenment. And I feel already pretty enlightened. So uh, I don't exactly need the mitzvah. That's a very, very big outcome of the Rambam that people were arguing about for the long time. Obviously, obviously, the Rambam is telling you you need to keep mitzvot. He's just saying that the Torah is really a kind of a, 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 a container born of the imaginative faculty of the prophets in order for... Uh, people to gain that level of enlightenment, but it's actually founded 
on effectively intellectual principles. The other thing the Rambam is telling you that caused a big, big uh, faribble for, for, every, for a lot of people is that the resurrection of the dead, which the Rambam said was one of the principles of Judaism, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, but that he said was a principle of Judaism, and people go, oh, well, very good, Rambam, that's very orthodox, that's exactly right. However, says the Rambam, uh, not necessarily happening in a body, because at the end of the day, what's important? The intellect. And it's the intellect that is going to undergo the resurrection, the immortality of the soul. The Rambam saw in terms of disembodied souls being rising again, uh, in contrast famously to the Ramban and other thinkers who said that, no, 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 resurrection happens in the body. These, once again, not big ideas that keep people awake at night today, but in the Middle Ages, trying to ground the Torah on science was an incredibly important exercise for people that were living in a world that was starting to become intellectually and aware of itself. Remember that the science of the Middle Ages, while it doesn't compare to the science we talk about today, nevertheless provided the grounding in mathematics and in observation that is going to create the modern world. Uh, and the more we're observing, the more we're seeing, and the more instruments were being refined, and the more people were thinking about these things, uh, the more that they wanted to know how does that sit with, uh, with my spiritual traditions. It was happening in the Islamic world uh, through people at the time of the Rambam, through people like Averroes, Ibn Rushd, and it was happening in the Jewish world through the Rambam. It was about to happen in the Christian world also with figures like Thomas Aquinas and so on who were going to also weld their spiritual systems onto Aristotle because the dominance of Aristotelian thinking in the Middle Ages as science was so overwhelming that you had to do that. I'm just going to touch in the last minute or two just on the other famous Aristotelian from the Middle Ages who's a little later. He's living more towards the end of the 13th and the beginning of the 14th century. And I have spoken about this figure elsewhere, and that, of course, is the Ralbag, Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, uh, the famous Levi ben Gershon, uh, after whom he's named Rabbi Levi's crater on the moon. And that, of course, is because of his tremendous contributions to, uh, to math uh, mathematics and astronomy and, uh, and so on, and uh, all the tables that, uh, that he uh, drew up and, some, so, and, and, and even uh, invented various uh, appliances uh, for astronomy. It's a very, very important figure that's been recognized uh, by world thought for his contributions to astronomy. There are two craters on the moon named after Jews, by the way, and we've discussed this elsewhere. But he has a couple of very, very important uh, points that we need to be aware of that also became very, very controversial. And that is that he, he, I mean, he's Aristotelian on crack. In fact, he went too far because his philosophy has actually kind of been pushed outside of mainstream because he argued that miracles uh, don't actually happen. Miracles happen the Rambam wanted you to understand that miracles are the laws of nature ordained to happen at that time. The Rambam says they don't actually happen. They only appear to happen in the sublunar abode. It's not the case that the sun stopped for Joshua. It's the case that from our perspective, we saw it in the sublunar abode that way, but it didn't actually happen that way. And uh, this was a radical thing, but not as radical as his idea that 
his resolution of the concept of free choice by limiting the knowledge of God. The Ralbag says that he thought about it a great deal, and the only way he can find out that his way out of the paradox between God's omniscience, the all-knowing universe, uh, and our ability to have free choice in that universe is by limiting God's knowledge. God doesn't actually know the details of what happens. God sets the world uh, in uh, motion through its laws of physics and so on, but uh, for most people, God's not actually interested in the day-to-day details. And this, of course, is something that Jewish thought is going to have to come back at very heavily, uh, and uh, because we cannot, as a spiritual system, uh, rob ourselves of our unique relationship with God, because our whole spiritual premise is founded on that idea that we have a relationship with God individually as well as collectively. So the Rambag, uh, despite his very impressive intellectual achievements, got a little bit outed, but the uh, from mainstream uh, Jewish thought. But the Rambam is front and center inside Jewish philosophy, and uh, we're going to see next week how that incredible emphasis on the intellect and intellectual achievements uh, played out in Jewish thought, but there's no question that the Rambam's primary objective in his philosophy, which was to reconcile science as it is understood objectively and rationally in the world with the spiritual systems of Torah, is an absolutely imperative exercise, and many have realized that today. You can't sit in a room and pretend that science doesn't happen. At the same time, you don't say, oh, there's science, so I'll throw off my palace and I'll go and eat at McDonald's. We can't say that either. The imperative to reconcile those two is still with us. And that's the fundamental contribution of the Rambam's more Mokhem. And I thank you for following me on that bit of a roller coaster. Uh, but I look forward to uh, the next installment next week. And uh, have, a, have a great day. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.